Good morning, good to see you, especially after uh, last week's Snowmageddon where we barely had the doors of the church open and a few of you made it, but not very many, Uh, but on a week like that, that was a rough one, wasn't it? So great to kind of have the church family back together again and to be with you. Here we are beginning 2014, a year that I, I honestly, I think it is shaping up to be, I think it could be the most significant year in the history of our church. I mean, we got some really big things that are, uh, that are underway. And so, you know, we, we give that to the Lord, right? If the Lord wills, but, uh, uh, early indications are that this is going to be a barn burning year here at, uh, at, at, at Bethel. So excited about this year. Also excited about, uh, the opportunity to begin a new series. For, the, for a long time, we have been in the New Testament, and it just seemed to us that after a long time in the New Testament, it'd be great for the church family to spend some time in the Old Testament. And so we're beginning a new series that will take us into what I would consider perhaps the most relevant section in the entire Old Testament for the day, the culture, and the society that we live in, uh, today, it is, uh, here's the passage, it's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Now, you may not know that reference, but I would bet you probably know the content of that reference, because it is the, uh, the famous or the notorious Ten Commandments. Now, famous or notorious, depending upon your perspective. Uh, if you are a, a follower of Jesus, lover of the Bible... It's a famous section of scripture. If you are in the legal community or in the political uh, community, then it is a notorious section of scripture, especially uh, recently, as you probably know, there's been all of these battles about uh, whether the Ten Commandments should be uh, placed on the, in the walls of the courthouse or in schools or in other public venues. And there's been all kinds of lawsuits and all kinds of things that have gone on. And you can debate all that. Our purpose is not to debate that. Um, but what cannot be denied is that at the basis of really the, the laws of the, the land and the general, I would say, general ethical understanding of what is right and wrong is the Ten Commandments. It has been... Uh, over all of these centuries that has had this role within particularly Western civilization uh, and has, has been just a foundational uh, reality and, and an impacting truth upon all of our lives. So I think that as we come to the Ten Commandments, we have to understand that uh, this isn't like you know, some other passage of scripture where, you know, people know it, but they don't really care. I mean, this is a, this is a hot topic. This is a hot potato. There is a lot of angst and controversy about it. And for us to understand why, I mean, if, if, if we wanted to put up Psalm 23 in the courthouse, you know, would anybody really care? Probably not as much, you know, God's a shepherd and leads us by still waters and, you know, my cup overfloweth. Oh, that's fine. Put that there. What is it about the 10 commandments that people don't like. Why does it create, or do they create so much angst and so much controversy? And I think the answer is clear that if there are commands, that it means that there is a command giver. And oh, by the way, if there is a command giver, we're accountable to him. And at the basis of why we don't like the Ten Commandments, or 
people generally don't like the Ten Commandments. We're going to love them here. Like David said, I love your law. We want to go that way. But in, in general culture, why people, people are rubbed the wrong way by the Ten Commandments is that they remind us of what we do not want to be reminded of, namely that we are sinners who sin and are accountable to God. That's the foundation. That's why people don't like the Ten Commandments. Now, a greater need, I think, than getting the Ten Commandments back into the schools is getting the Ten Commandments back into the church. Like, if I was to say, all right, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. There's ten of them. You, right now, what, can you tell me what they are? How many of us could even get five out of the ten? I'm not asking you to do that. But by the end of this series, I would love for every single person here to be able to, to rattle them off. Is that a, is that a good goal? Should, a, should God's people know the Ten Commandments? I think so. So we'll get to that. And we got weeks ahead for learning those and getting those all down. And we're going to study every single one of them. And that, of course, will help. Now, as we get into the series, I want to draw your attention to the uh, graphic that we've put together for the, the series. And so... I, if, if you look at that, and, and if you kind of squinted a little, you almost could say, you know, I think the name of this series is The One Commandment. But then if you squinted a little bit, you'd say, no, it's the, it's the Ten Commandments. No, it's, it's The One Commandment. And you see how brilliant it is? A little double entendre there, it means one thing. Oh, no, it means another thing. And that is intentional because what, what we want to do throughout the study of the Ten Commands is to keep one command central to the Ten Commands. And you say, well, what command are you talking about? Are you just cherry-picking your favorite one? No, Jesus cherry-picked it for us. He was once asked, of all the commands in the Old Testament, which one is the, is the greatest? Which one is the most important? And here is what he said in Matthew 22. He said... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now we're going to study this later on. But right here at the beginning, I want us to just plop that right into our matrix and to realize why Jesus said that this is the greatest commandment. He didn't say don't murder, and he didn't say don't covet, and he had, didn't have something to say about the priestly garments as being the greatest commandment. He says, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the great command. Why? And the answer is because if you are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't need a command that says, don't kill other people made in the image of God. You don't need another command that says, don't profane the name of God. Why? Because if you love God, you are going to treasure his name. And if you love God, you are going to value those that are made in the image of God. And if you love God, you're not going to have any other gods before him. And so if you get that one right... You get all the other ones with it. Kind of like bowling. You get the front pin, it's possible that you're going to get all the rest of them. But if, if you don't get the front pin, you're never going to get all of them, are you? Because that front pin will always be standing there. Uh, I don't know if that was helpful, but it comes to my mind right now. <laughs> okay, the greatest command. If we could simply love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we wouldn't need the other commands. Now, as sinners, corrupt, fallen, 
we never will fulfill that. And that is why we have the other commands. Is the, the, other, the, the, the ten exist because we fail in the one, right? And we need some help in knowing what does it look like to live my life loving God more than anything or anybody else. And, and God says, okay, well, here, let me, let me explain that to you. And the Ten Commandments really are a kind of summary. They're not exhaustive. There's lots of other things God has to say in the Old Testament. But in terms of a summary statement of the essence, ethically and morally, of what it looks like to love the God of heaven, it's the best uh, that's ever been compiled. It comes from the mouth of God. Now, I also want you to note in what Jesus picks as the great command, how central love is to it. Love. Many people think about commands and they're like, that, that doesn't feel like love. That feels like law, right? And law's over here and love's over here. No. And you see that in, in, the, in the commands that God gives and the one that Jesus picks central to this is, is love. If I could illustrate it this way, if, if, you have, if you have a teenage son, he's 16, 17 years old, he has SATs the next day, and you say, I want you home at 10 o'clock, tomorrow is your SATs. And he's like, you don't love me, my friends are going to be out till 2 in the morning, I want to be with them, I want to be free, you're oppressive parents, right? No, we love you enough to want you to get a good night of sleep before your SATs. Or a child, if you're about to walk across the street with a small child, and you say, hold daddy's hand, right? Now that child could go, you don't love me. I want to be free from these oppressive commands to hold your hand. And obviously, the parent does the command because he or she loves the child, not to be oppressive or because he hates them. And the commands of God are the same. And we have, to, we have to change our perspective on it. To look at the commands of God as expressions of the love and the grace of God. He gives them to us for our benefit. He gives them to us for our good. He gives them to us so that we might experience the maximum joy of the human experience. And who knows better how the whole human thing is supposed to work than the guy who, guy, the, the God, the God, the great and grand God who designed and created the human race in the first place. Okay? He knows best. In fact, I think it would be helpful if rather than looking at the commands as being uh, you know, kill, killers of joy and killers of happiness. Rather, they are, they're like guides to happiness in reality. I have a, there's a political commentator that I, I will read occasionally. And I might like him just because of his name. His last name is Hewitt. And in a Dutchy sort of way, Hewitt and Dewitt sound similar. So I think the guy must be brilliant, of course. And so his name's Hugh Hewitt. And uh, he's written some books, and I've read one of his a couple times. But he just came out with a book, I think, a few weeks ago. And the name of the book uh, is The Happy Life. Okay, The Happy Life. Now, talk about a great title. If you're in the bookstore and you're like, what do I want to read? And here's a book that says The Happy Life. Well, that sounds good to me, right? A guide to the happy life. If we could look at the Ten Commands 
like a guide to the happy life, how much more interested we would be, of course, in them. Like if you leave here today and you go to see some friends or whatever and they say, how was church? It was fantastic. What was best about it? The sermon was fantastic. I'm just planting the thought. Uh, and, well, really, well, what, what's it about? Well, we started a, a new teaching series on the Ten Commands. The Ten Commandments. Can you see the look on their face going, oh, my God, the Ten Commandments. You say, no, 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 no. It's a guide to the happy life. And he's like, what are you smoking at church? That's not the way that it is. But you see how... The sinful, natural man. Because what is at the root? Let's just realize, what is at the root of man's disinclination to liking any commands over him or her? It is the worship not of God, but the worship of self. And self's desire to do jolly well whatever it wants to do. And for you to say that I got to do this is, I don't like that. I want to do what I want to do. I want autonomy in my life. I certainly don't want commands. And so we then see what really is at the root, and this goes all the way to Adam and Eve back in the garden when Eve decided that she was going to make her choice, be, you know, did God really say, Satan says to Eve, and she sees the fruit and sees how desirable it is and wants to have knowledge and doesn't care about the law of God. And from that, then all the rest of us were like, were like Eve or Steve, uh, for that matter. I'm playing uh, name games here today. Uh, we are fundamentally selfish and self is on the throne of our heart and self on the throne of the heart doesn't want anybody else telling me what I got to do. Okay. But really they are commands to the, or their commands or guides to the happy life. You say, well, how can that be? Well, and we're going to talk a lot about this. Eight of the 10 commands are in the negative. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. But with every negative command, there is a corresponding positive one, okay? So that when, when God says, don't covet, what is he saying? Essentially, he is saying, enjoy the wonders and the, and the, and the, and the uh, contentment. I said that backwards. Enjoy what it means to be content and not to be greedy and covetous and all the rest. Or when he, when he says, uh, you know, do not kill what is he saying there? Value life. Enjoy relationships. Love those that are around you. All of that. Again, back to the garden. When God says, don't eat of this one tree in the midst of this beautiful, wonderful garden. What was he implicitly saying with, to Adam and Eve? Enjoy every tree, millions of trees and all their fruits and tomatoes and cucumbers and, and blueberries and peaches and run and frolic and frump and just grab from anything you want and eat as much as you want. Just don't eat the one. Okay. So implicit in that, in the, in the negative is this wonderful, wonderful positive. Of course, Adam and Eve, which is what's the one tree they stood in front of and went, oh man, what that must taste like. All right, so let's talk now about the Ten Commandments in context, okay? In context. In the context of the biblical narrative, the redemptive story, I'd like to briefly just fly by the Bible's uh, telling of the story of redemption up to the point of Mount Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments. Okay, so ready? Fly by. Okay, fly by. We go back to Genesis. 
uh, 1 and 2, which tells us that the genesis of everything is God and the creative hand of God. God creates the universe and God creates everything that is. He creates the earth. He creates the solar system. He creates uh, the, 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 the mountains and the oceans and he creates the animals and the plants. And then he creates... The masterpiece of everything that he did, even greater than the most wonderful galaxy, was when he made man like himself in some respects, with a personality and with a mind and with a moral conscience and a soul and a spirit that can worship and must worship something. He made, the Bible says, us in the image of God. Places Adam and Eve in a garden, says, enjoy, frolic, fromp, eat anything you want, just not from this one tree over here. Genesis 3, there they are at the tree. They're not supposed to eat from. Satan tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. Both of them fall in rebellion against God. And God comes to them and righteously says, because of what you have done, you shall surely die. Later, Romans 6 is going to tell us the wages of sin is death. And so the human race and us as well with Adam and Eve fell into this judgment from God. Now in a situation where we cannot remedy our plight. We die physically. We die eternally. And life now has lost its sense of purpose and meaning. And maybe you're here today and you're still sort of in that situation. Look, searching for what is life about. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Everything seems confusing. Everything seems a mess. That's what happens when image bearers of God no longer have God as central in their life. They're not loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, i got to keep going. Genesis, that's Genesis 3. And so right away, the human race spirals downward morally. Their son, Cain, murders their other son, Abel. And with that, this decline rapidly into gross sin and immorality and all the rest, God looks down upon the human race and sees their total rebellion against him and says, I have got to, I, I'm, I'm starting over. And so he sends a flood Across the whole earth, all mankind is killed, save one family, Noah, and his family, for whom God, before the flood, said, build an ark, and I'm going to save you. And even there, we have a picture of a saving, redeeming God, that ark, a picture of the cross, essentially. But again, I digress. So, now, Noah uh, has descendants, and one of them... This is many years later. The earth is repopulated. One of them was a guy named Abraham. And God enters into a relationship with Abraham, a unilateral covenant, and says, I will be your God. You will, uh, your people will be my people. You'll have descendants that are innumerable. And I am, I am going to bless you and bless all the earth through you. And so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has ten, uh, 12 sons, but 10 of them hate one of them. And it's a long story, but the one of them, his name's Joseph, ends up down in Egypt. And lo and behold, he, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, in a sense, the whole world. And Jacob and all his family and all everybody comes down and joins Joseph down in Egypt. So... 400 years go by, and the Israelites, they multiply like rabbits. They are, they become themselves a kind of nation, and a pharaoh arises in Egypt who doesn't know Joseph, and is threatened by them, and, thro- and basically oppresses them, makes them slaves for the whole nation. And in their oppression, after 400 years, God sends 
God sends a kind of a kind of savior. He sends a leader. His name was Moses, who, interestingly, Moses uh, was was born, should have died, was preserved, and lo and behold, is raised in the court of Pharaoh as a son of Pharaoh. Incredible privilege, incredible riches. Uh, you know, the world is at his fingertips. The world is his oyster. But one day he sees one of it. He knows he's a Jew. He sees a fellow Jew who's being beaten by two Egyptians. He kills both of them. Now he knows that word's going to get out. The gig is up in Egypt. And he flees out into the wilderness. For 40 years, he lives out in the wilderness. He gets married. What else do you do when you're in the wilderness? You get married and has children and, and all of that. And after 40 years, one day he's out in the middle of the, of the desert. And he looks up and here's a high mountain. And on that mountain, he sees that there is a bush that's burning. And the, he watches it. It's never consumed. He says, I've never seen anything like this. I'm going to go up and I'm going to check that out. He gets up by the bush and the bush speaks to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ground that you are on is holy. I have a mission for you, Moses. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to take to lead the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and back to the land that I promised Abraham. And long story short, Moses goes back. God performs the 10 plagues. Pharaoh, who is not wanting them to leave, after the 10th plague says, you may leave. They leave that night. Out they go from Egypt. They get to the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind and says, I can't lose my entire slave force. Let's go get them. The armies of Egypt race after the Israelites. And God performs this incredible miracle whereby he parts the Red Sea. And the entire nation goes across the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army goes into the sea after them. God closes up the sea over them. The armies are wiped out. And now they stand, the entire nation, on the other side of the Red Sea, free from slavery, free from bondage, and now wondering, okay, what's next? And Moses, by God's direction, leads them back to the mountain upon which he had seen the burning bush. And we pick up the story now In Exodus 19, as God covenants himself, in a sense renewing the covenant that he began with Abraham, covenants himself now to an entire nation. This is a kind, it's almost like a marriage ceremony. If you ever wonder what it would be like to marry God, if you could say it that way appropriately, this is like the ceremony and it is a powerful and an imposing ceremony scene that we have here. I pick it up in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. What's that sound like? The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. The Bible says no man can look on the face of God and live. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, this is not a burning bush that is speaking. This is an entire mountain. God speaks from this mountain. And it's an incredible scene. Think volcano. Think Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings. This is as close as I can think of where this just this mountain is just alive and smoke and thunder and lightning. And the whole scene is so imposing. In fact, Hebrews even t- talks about the terror that the people felt where they said, Moses, tell him to stop. We can't bear this anymore. You say, well, why did God, you know, why not the little whisper of Elijah? Why does he come down with such force and power and grandeur and might. And Moses tells us in in, in verse 20 of chapter 20, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now this of course does not work well within about a month. They're going to bow down to a golden calf. That has nothing to do with the power and the grandeur of God. That is the moral brokenness of the human heart and the fickleness of our promises and covenants. But God comes down in power and might, shows the glory uh, of himself. And then we, we pick it up now because the mountain, God on the mountain speaks to the gathered nation before him. Well, what does he say? Chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Which is the first command. And the second and the third follow, which we'll get into. Now, I want everybody to get this point, because if you do not get this point that I want to make right now, this entire series may be lost on you. And I would say, you don't understand the gospel. So please listen right now. Do you see the order that God gives this in? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Then he gives the moral command, you shall have no other gods before me. And the entire exodus, by God's own word here and from the testimony of Scripture, is intended to be a picture of what salvation is, essentially. It is not that the Israelites obey the commands and then God says, you're good enough people, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. It is God and his grace to Israel to send a Savior in Moses and then to, by his power and his might, take them out of Egypt. And it is after they come out of Egypt, a picture of salvation, that he now says, stipulation to the covenant, you shall have no other gods before me. Imagine if God had gone to them in Egypt and said, okay, you guys want out of here? Here's the gig. I got 10 commandments. You obey them perfectly. And if you earn it, I'll get you out. They would still be there, would they not? Why? Because they could never fulfill them. They could never have done the Ten Commandments if that was the condition of God's grace to them. And we see then this picture of what salvation is. It is not us obeying the commands and now God's grace coming to us. It is God's grace coming to us, saving us, and because of that now, we seek to obey Him. 
And if you misunderstand that, you're going to leave here and think, I've got to do the Ten Commandments. I've got to, I'm going to be saved. And so I'm going to obey God. You can try all you want. You will not save yourself. We cannot save ourselves. We rather receive the gift and the grace of God, this gift through Jesus to us. And then as a result of this grace to God, to us, we offer our fickle and frail, but genuine desire to obey him and to live lives to his glory. The one has to precede the other. Did you get it? Okay. I hope that you got it because that is so essential to understanding the 10 commandments. It is grace, then command and obedience. It is salvation, then sanctification. All right. Now, this is an introductory message to the Ten Commandments. We're going to get into the first one next weekend. But one of the challenges that we have when it comes to reading Old Testament commands is, like, what's the purpose of the commands for us today? How should we view them? Is it, is it contextual only? Like, well, that was good for them. That was the Israelites, but we're not them. And so we, you know, they don't apply to us. And here's where oftentimes a casual reading of the Bible, we trip up on this issue. Because if you begin in Genesis and just started reading, you have all of these commands. You know, you get to Exodus and the commands begin here in verse uh, chapter 20 and, and following. You know, Leviticus is all kinds of commands. When you go to offer a bull, do this. When you offer a calf, do that. Uh, once a year, day of atonement. And the, by the way, the priests need to look, wear this kind of fabric. And the tabernacle needs to be designed like this. And on and on. You've got all of these commands. It's difficult reading in Leviticus because there's just so many of these commands. But then you get to the New Testament. And Paul, especially, talks a lot about law. And he speaks, if you look at it, casually he seems to speak derogatorily about the law and talks a lot about grace so if you just stop there you can say okay i kind of get this how this works the old testament it's all about law the new testament is all about grace the people in the old testament they earn their salvation by obeying the law the people in the new testament we don't try to it we just receive the grace of god i think i've got the bible figured out and that would be a fundamental misunderstanding of both covenants The Old Testament, people were saved in the Old... No, let me say it this way. Nobody was saved in the Old Testament by obeying the law. The book of Hebrews, that's what it's saying to us, right? Nobody, the law was imperfect. It was a shadow. It wasn't able to save anyone. We needed the reality, not the shadow. And the reality is found in Jesus. It was his sacrifice once for all, right? Which is why we don't have somewhere in the church an altar, by the way, after the service. Please gather back in room 112. Uh, We have a bull, a goat, and a dove. It's going to be great. We don't do that, right? Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was once for all. And by the way, bulls and, and, and goats didn't save anybody anyway. We are saved by grace, Old Testament and New Testament. Mankind can't earn our salvation. God has to give it to us. It has to be received by faith. So it's confusing then when you read through the New Testament because it has all of these challenging things, particularly Romans and Galatians, to say about the law. And here is the key to understanding why Paul talks about the law like he does. He is not saying that the law is bad. What he is rather saying is that uh, those of you that are trying to be saved by the law, forget about it. Right? Nobody is saved by the law. 
The law, actually, he says in 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I think the NIV says if one uses it properly. There is a proper use of the law in the life of the Christian, but you've got to use it right. The wrong way to do it is to say, I'm going to try to fulfill all these things so that I can be saved. Well, then how are we to do it? What is the purpose of the law? And a great example of this is the exposition of the Ten Commandments that Jesus gave in Matthew 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus basically exposits these old covenant laws and says, you say that it's wrong to murder somebody. I tell you, if you are angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. You say it's wrong to have sexual intercourse with somebody who is not your spouse. I say to you, wanting to have intercourse with somebody that is not your spouse is sin, known as lust. And what do we find Jesus doing as he walks through these commands, which the Israelites viewed as outward, external, as long as I don't actually do the deed? He takes it to the heart level and he says, it is down in the human heart where the motives and the affections and the desires lie. This is where sin actually begins. And you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you get to the end of Matthew 7 and If you don't understand the cross, we could just say, you know what? We're all going to hell. Because I maybe haven't murdered anybody, but I've been angry with a lot of folk. I'm a sinner. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so challenging to us. People can read the Ten Commandments and go, I'm good. Like the, uh, the the rich young ruler who said, I've fulfilled these things since I was a kid. Jesus says, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, come follow me. You'll have uh, riches in heaven. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. So, understand then that in the commands of God, it comes back to that one command, which is the heart level. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what we aspire to, and this is what we fail miserably at. And yet, this is what God is seeking to free us from the sin of worship of self and to free us to the happy life, which is... Loving God more than anything else and anyone else. And then expressing that love in moral and ethical categories that bring glory to him. And the Ten Commands guide us in what that should look like. A further challenge that we have in, the Old Te- in, 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 in reading through the Old Testament and understanding the law is that, and very quickly I'm going to do this, there are three basic categories of Old Testament law. You have ceremonial laws, which is when you kill the bull, cut off this part and burn that and eat that and all the rest, priests and tabernacles, ceremonial laws. You have civic laws that, you know, Israel, this is how you're to be governed politically and this is how the way things are to be to work. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus fulfilled and uh, annulled all of the ceremonial and all of the civic laws of the Old Testament. The third category of Old Testament law is the moral category. And the, this category does not change and is not annulled by the work of Jesus because it flows from the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, you can look at the commands because they express what he is like so that God is truth. 
Therefore, lying will always be wrong because God is truth. God is most glorious. Therefore, in eternity future, it will always be sin to profane his name. The commands flow from and express the character of God, and that character never changes. Therefore, the moral commands of God are always in effect. They are always relevant. They are always authoritative. And so that's why we come to the, you know, we look at kill a bull, kill a goat. We go, ah, we don't have to do that anymore. We look at the Ten Commands and we're like, ooh, those still apply. Now, how do they apply? Okay, and the last thing I want to talk with you about is, is again, this purpose of the Ten Commandments. What is their purpose in the life of the Christian? And uh, uh, Pastor Randall Grossman summarized this, I thought, simply. I can't improve on it, so I'm just going to use his. In saying that the law is a map, it is a muzzle, and it is a mirror. Okay, a map, a muzzle, and a mirror. Now let's talk about, first of all, in what way is God's law a map? God's law guides our life, it ought to, guides our life and our conduct. So let's talk about maps a second. And young people, this is going to seem so crazy to you. But young people, listen, there once was a day when maps were printed on paper, okay? We did not always have garments and smartphones and gps okay there was a day way back when in fact i went to the smithsonian and i actually got one of these printed maps look carefully young people it's you've probably never seen one of these and back in the day young people what they would do is they would print these maps mysteriously on paper and with folds to ensure that you would never ever be able to fold it again right so this is what a map is. And let's just review the purpose of a map. When would you pull this out of the glove compartment of your car? You're on a trip, you're somewhere, and all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I'm lost, right? And you look around, you can't tell which way is north. Yes, young people, there was a time when, when the compass also was not on the phone or in the car. I mean, we're going way back into the dark ages here. And you didn't know what was north and what was south and where to go. And so somebody would say, hey, why don't you pull out the map so that we can know which way we ought to go. Okay. Now, in that way, the law is, this is what the law is for us. It tells us morally and ethically which way we should go. Imagine if we didn't have, if God in his grace had not given us ten commands or anything else. We would just be basically living like our society lives right now, where there is no map in our contemporary culture. Or if you have a map, you're allowed to have your map, but don't you say that your map is my map. So we summarize then the moral decisions of our culture with the word whatever. It's whatever you want. And as long as what you doesn't infringe on my freedoms and rights, then I can have my map. You got your map, but there is no transcendent map. And there certainly isn't a map maker that we are accountable to. Don't even begin to talk to me about that. How do we live in a way that pleases God? We look to the law, and it helps us know how we should live. Secondly, the law is a muzzle. And I went to the store, and I, I, I wanted a muzzle like the cool ones, the old ones with, like, metal across the front, you know. And I think this uh, 
I think it was a German shepherd, maybe a Doberman on the front uh, of the package that I got. So this is like for serious dogs. Because, and why do we buy muzzles, by the way? Or why do we, we, we need muzzles with some dogs in particular? And it's because the dog has a natural thing that it wants to do. If left to its own devices, if, left, if it had total freedom to do anything that it wanted, dogs love to bark and dogs love to bite, right? And so the muzzle then acts as a kind of restraint to what the dog would do if it felt like it had total freedom to do whatever it wanted to do. And the law of God, like a muzzle for us, acts as a kind of restraint when you have 7 billion people living on the same planet, all of whose hearts are desperately wicked and left to our own devices. If we were completely free and thought there was no consequence, we would do all manner of evil against one another. But the law steps in and says, oh no, wait a second. There are lines morally and ethically. This is Uh, good to do, and this is sin to do. And the Bible says that God even wrote that law, Romans 1 and 2, on the human heart. We have a conscience, right? There are things that we instinctively know are not right and are not wrong. So that if you went to the person on the street and said, hey, are there moral absolutes? They may, they may say uh, no. So then you could say, well, then was it okay for what Hitler did to the Jews? And they will instinctively say, no, that was horrible. Why? Because the God has written his law on the human heart. And even the the pagan knows and understands instinctively that there are moral categories. And uh, we may debate what those are, but we live in a moral universe. God has made that clear. A muzzle, the law. Another example of this, I think, is uh, what you... And I instinctively do when we're driving down the road. We'll go back to where we're on the trip. We've actually looked at the map. We know where we're going, but now we're late. And we're flying down the highway. We're trying to get wherever we're going as quick as we can. And what do we do instinctively when we see a police officer along his car there in the median on the interstate? Now, we, we, you don't, when you see, you don't think to yourself, hey, I can go as fast as I want. Look, there's a cop car, right? Uh, and you can be going... 15 miles an hour under the speed limit, which some of you do on 109th when I'm trying to get to church. (laughs) You can be under the speed limit and you still will break when you see the cop. Why? Because that's what the law does. The presence of law restrains. Think about a downtown city where there, you know, there's a snowstorm or there's something else. There's no police present whatsoever. What happens in a downtown city when there is no law? We call that anarchy. There is a mob. You see the video. They're, you know, they're breaking through the window and they're running out with televisions in both hands thinking, I'm free, I'm free, I can do what I want. Until the law shows up and then nobody's pulling TVs out of the display in the front of the, uh, of the store. Why? The law does that. And we need to be glad that God has given law and written it on our heart or think of the anarchy that we would live in. Finally, a mirror, okay? A mirror. And I just bring this, you all know what a mirror is, okay? But I bring this for illustration. A mirror. Listen as I read Romans 7 verse 13 to what Paul says about the law, did that which is good, and here he is referring to the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law. 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Notice the phrase specifically, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, the moral law of God is like a mirror. We look into the law and it shows us for who we actually are. I see myself through the eyes of God as I actually am. I read, I read something like, do not covet your neighbor's wife, house, etc. I look into that mirror and I think about how I have desired this, that, and the other. And I realize how discontented and lack of trusting I have been. It shows and reveals sin in my heart. That's part of the role of the law. And I would say of all the things to understand about it, this is the most important. Because as we come to understand the holiness of God through what the law is actually saying and the moral requirements that a holy God has right down to the human heart level, which is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, the more I understand the law, the more I realize how sinful I actually am. So if you're here today and you're going, I'm a good person generally, I'm better than most people I know, I'm glad for Christianity because it's inspiring and I like the services here, but I'm going to walk out the door, everything's fine because I'm a good person. You don't begin to understand the moral requirements of God as expressed in the law. You come to this series and hopefully by the end of the series, you're going to be like, I'm horrible. Now, how's that for inspiring people to attend the series? But it begins with understanding how I actually stand before God, which now is where the law does its most wonderful and beautiful fruit. Because as I come to see myself before a holy God, it drives me to look for a savior. If I am this sinful, man, I need saving. And I begin to look around. Who, where's the savior? Who could it possibly be? Donald Gray Barnhouse makes the point about the law as a mirror, and he says, you know, mirrors are really great for pointing out what's wrong in my life, but they're, they're, they're ter- it's terrible for cleaning anything. Like, you ever look in the mirror and go, oh, my goodness, where did that come from? And then go, no, right? Mirrors point out things. They drive us, they drive us to the sink, they drive us to the basin, they drive us to the, to the soap and the cloth. And when I come to understand the law of God, it, even as a Christian, it enriches my understanding both of my own sin and the glories and the beauty and the wonder that Christ is one who fulfilled every aspect of the law perfectly. Imagine with me, Jesus, Jesus He never loved anyone more than God the Father. Not once. Always loved him with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He never, ever created anything that was an idol in his heart and life. He always honored God's name. Never profaned it. He always fulfilled the Sabbath as Lord of the Sabbath. He always honored his Father and his mother. He was never unrighteously angry, never selfish in his orientation of, of, with emotions against, he was never violent against anyone. Sexually, men, listen to me, sexually holy his entire life. 
both external and internal. Always truthful. Always content. Always trusting his heavenly father to provide everything that he needed. If you want to understand the gospel, here it is. Jesus fulfilled the law and then he died for everybody who hasn't. That is the gospel. And the law drives us to a need and drives us to, through the gospel, the foot of the cross. And there we find this amazing, not lawbreaker, but law keeper who kept the law and then died for all of our law breaking. And this way, God's law can be for us. It's a map for sure. It's a, it's a muzzle but it is a mirror that will take our hearts to the Lord and help us realize the glory of who he is and to admire even more deeply this one, this Savior Jesus. And so if that is the fruit of this series, well, this is going to be a good one. And I think that it will be. So next week, you shall have no other gods before me. We're going to dig into it. Let's pray together. Why don't we stand to do so?